Amen. 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 You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. It's fantastic this morning. All right. Well, welcome. Uh, those of you may have seen on Facebook that we're starting a new series, uh, and uh, I get to do the introduction. Uh, you know that it's going to be, you know, when you get to the, uh, you know, the half hour mark, the 45 minute mark, and someone says they've just finished their introduction. Uh, well, today it's not so bad because that's that's all I'm going to to do. Anyway, um, <coughs> yes, yeah, sorry, that's all right. It's just an introduction. Uh, it was interesting. I was on um, uh, on a course uh, just recently, a communication course for 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 Vision College. Uh, and we were talking about the big idea, this one idea that you're trying to get across as a, as a communicator, as a preacher, the one idea that you want people to take away uh, from your sermon. Um, and one of the, um, one of the uh, students on that uh, course actually made a nice comment and said, you know, Craig preached a memorable sermon just recently. Um, I'm not going to mention his, <coughs> uh, his name, but um, he said... Uh, he said uh, that the, the sermon I preached was memorable. And of course, stupid me, I asked the follow-up question. Oh, okay. So what was the big idea? Anyway, that's when you play that little track that has crickets uh, chirping uh, in the background. Because anyway, it wasn't as memorable as perhaps his recollection would suggest. Uh, but anyway, that's okay. Uh, I did get asked uh, just to, to mention in, in passing, uh, just for those of you maybe a little bit worried, I did leave the pet spider at home uh, this week. All right, so, so that, that was the only memorable thing from that sermon. All right, so you, that's, that's by way of introduction. And, but you may, be, uh, you may be getting the impression this morning that what we're talking about is transformation. Uh, the title uh, of the sermon series uh, is Metamorphosis. We're talking about a new form taking shape, a visible transformation. And this morning, uh, we've even heard uh, testimonies about transformation, testimonies about people stepping into change, uh, people, uh, testimonies about people who are expecting change. This idea that what we do uh, as we go forward with, with God is not going to be done in the same way that we've done it in the past. This idea that if we want to step into something new, we have to become something new. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles handy, uh, the key verse for not only this morning, but the, uh, the sermon series is uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Uh, Jamie read it uh, right at the start of the service, uh, so 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Uh, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, metamorphosis and transformation are, in fact, uh, synonyms. Um, they mean the same thing, and in 2 Corinthians, this word that's it's translated as transformed in the English is actually from the Greek word metamorpho. Metamorpho, which is where the same word we actually get the word metamorphosis. Now, the thought here is two parts. Meta means 
uh, sometimes can mean afterwards, but in this sense means going beyond. All right, so meta is this going beyond, and then morpho uh, means form. So metamorphosis is about going beyond the current form. In the same way that transformation is taking the, the form that we have now and moving it to another form. Transformation is not about staying the same, and it's not about just getting bigger. It's about having a change, having a, 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 a something new that's placed within us. Uh, when we look at uh, Romans 12, 2 is another good example of where this Greek word metamorpho is used. It says in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of, of your mind. That's contrasting here, this conforming, which really just means to stay in the same way, to stay in the same pattern. And in terms of Romans 12, 2, it's saying, don't stay in the same way the world expects you to be. Don't, don't conform yourself to the way that the world thinks is what you should be, how you should look. But rather, you should be transformed, turned into something new, metamorphosized, if that's a word, uh, by the renewing of your mind. It tells us that we actually do this transformation, first of all, by renewing our mind. It's not that we start doing something different. It's that we start thinking something different. Now, I want to unpack this passage in 2 Corinthians uh, a little bit before we uh, get into what the series is going to be about. Uh, and really, you need to sort of understand some things because we lose a little bit in the translation in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, so a little bit of a, 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 a introduction to what the verse that we're talking about. Um, Paul is making reference to Moses. If we go back a few verses, uh, verse 12 there, Paul is making a reference that when Moses went into the tent of meeting and he met with God, he came out and his face was glowing. Now, there is some debate uh, in that Exodus 34 passage as to whether Moses put the veil on first and then spoke or whether he spoke without the veil and then put the veil on afterwards. But Paul makes it pretty clear that the sons of Israel, Paul says, were disturbed by this glowing face. They were disturbed because they could see effectively the stamp of God on Moses. And so when Moses brings this message, it's like looking into the face of God. And if you can imagine if you were in that position, that could be a little bit disturbing depending on where your heart was at. And so Paul is making this, this statement that says they, they were disturbed and so therefore Moses had to cover off or cover over the glory of the Lord. And then in verse 16 of chapter 3, uh, Paul says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the interesting Transition here is Jesus Christ never covered up his glory. We saw in the Mount of Transfiguration, you see that, at, that full representation of the glory of, the God, oh, glory of God. But Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is not about covering up his own face. And yet, for those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord, it's like they've put a veil over themselves so they don't have to, don't have to stare into 
the glory that is Jesus Christ. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. If you have turned to Christ, there is no veil over your eyes. The Spirit of the Lord, in verse 17, says, has has freed you from a distorted image. It's freed you to be able to see clearly. It's freed you to see the glory of the Lord. Uh, And then we pick it up in verse 18. It says, and we all with unveiled face. If you have turned to Jesus Christ and you see him as your Lord and Savior, your face is unveiled. You are able to see the glory of the Lord. We all with unveiled face. There's nothing spiritually hindering us from seeing what we need to see. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. Now this this is the piece that we sort of lose a little bit in the in the English translation, this idea of beholding has far more in it than just looking uh, at something. It's not that we're just looking at Christ, uh, but there's something else going on. So the NIV, uh, so that, uh, I just read it in the ESV, the NIV says, contemplate the Lord's glory. It's sort of not really getting there. Uh, New Living Translation, NLT, says, see and reflect the glory of the Lord. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. Uh, The New King James says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now we're starting to get the idea of the original language is not just looking at Jesus. The idea here is that's portrayed as someone who's looking in a mirror and not seeing their reflection but seeing Christ within them. Okay? Now, as we do that, that's not the end of the sentence, as we do that, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Uh, And the the NLT says, And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. So what I want you to want you to imagine, and I wish I had the special, special effects knowledge, I should have done the little video that would just illustrate this, but you're going to have to use your imagination this morning. Um, and, and just imagine this process, because unpacked in just this tiny little sentence is this idea. Imagine that you walk up to a mirror and you see yourself, uh, sorry, you walk up to a mirror and you expect to see yourself staring back at you. Uh, That's a pretty scary thought right on its own uh, for most of us. Uh, But anyway, but as you walk up to this mirror, what you see is the image of Christ, okay, in the mirror, staring back at you. Gets even creepier. Okay. Now, here's the process. As you continue to stare into the image that's in the mirror, the image doesn't change, but you are changed so that the mirror is a true reflection of what is standing in front of it. That's all that's contained in this verse 18. Okay, As we continue to stare into the mirror at the image of Christ, we are transformed 
into that, into that image. And that's the whole idea of metamorphosis. It's not about becoming, you know, saying, well, I, store, I stare into the mirror and my hair is disheveled like it normally is and I comb my hair. It's, it's nothing like that. This is being transformed into something new. Uh, and so hopefully uh, as you imagine that, it's a, it's a concept that just sort of blows your mind when you, when you think about this idea of as we stare into Christ, we are changed. James uses the same analogy in James chapter 1 uh, where he talks this, about this parallel between looking into a mirror in the natural and then walking away and forgetting what you look like as opposed to looking into the law of liberty, uh, which is the same as uh, uh, looking at Jesus Christ. And as we look into the law of liberty, we become an, an effectual doer is what James uh, says. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. This process of metamorphosis, this transformation, is about staring at the image of Christ to become the image of Christ. Staring at the image of Christ to become the image of Christ. Now, if we go back to your imagination, we're going to be looking at four different areas of this transformation process and if you go back to your imagination, and instead of thinking about yourself walking up to the mirror, think about somebody who is sleepwalking, walking up to the mirror. What do they see? Well, they see the inside of their eyelids. That's what they see. They're asleep. Their eyes are closed. <laughs> They've walked up to the mirror. They're staring at nothing. Has their tra- how is their transformation going to go? It's not going to go anywhere. All right. If you're staring into a mirror with your eyes closed, it's not a very effective way of seeing uh, what's in the mirror. Uh, in Ephesians 5.14, Paul puts a couple of uh, quotes together from the Bible, uh, and he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's a really interesting thing, because if you've ever been out in the sunshine, uh, whether you're sunbathing, um, and you, uh, you nod off, uh, I don't suggest that because you wake up with uh, sunburn, but uh, if you close your eyes, the sun continues to shine. It doesn't matter whether your eyes are open or whether your eyes are closed. Not so with Christ. Paul says, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. If you want Christ to shine in your hearts, your eyes need to be open. You need to be awake. Okay, You need to be awake to the Spirit. You need to be uh, able to recognize what God wants to do in you and through you. Otherwise, His light is meaningless to you. We need to be awake to what God is doing. We need to be awake to the Spirit at work in us. We need to be awake to the things that need to be changed in our own life. If we just ignore those things, transformation won't happen. Metamorphosis won't happen. Uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, a uh, fairly uh, well-known verse. It says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. Now, I realize that this is a physical application. If you look back a few verses, it talks about the labor of the ants and, and, and uh, working hard with your natural hands. But perhaps there's a spiritual application in that as well. A little slumber, a little rest, a little folding of the hands and the poverty of the spirit. 
can overtake you, or the scarcity of the Word of God in your life will take you prisoner like a man with a gun preventing you from stepping into your destiny. When we are awake, then we can move forward. If we are asleep or, dare I say it, dead, then we have no uh, way of being transformed. Uh, As Ian Green would say, that's just a thought. Try not to let it bother you. All right. (laughs) Awakening is the first part of transformation. All of these things are going to get unpacked in much, much more detail over the next uh, few weeks. And so, therefore, I'm just trying to bring an introduction. But think about being awake. Think about what awakening means in your life. Think ahead uh, to what God wants to do. The next thing I want to talk about is prayer. Our transformation continues as we engage in conversation with God. Metamorphosis is about changing into something new, and it's about going beyond the current and moving towards Christ-likeness. Now, we often look to the present to see what we're capable of. We often judge what we're able to do by what we currently can do. Is that the way God looks at us? Uh, There's a book called uh, Hind's Feet on High Places uh, by Hannah Hernard. It's an allegorical story, if you like that sort of thing. Uh, I suggest it's a very short read, uh, but it's about the journey that we face as Christians. It's about the, the struggles, the hopes, the dreams, the fears, the obstacles, the failures, the victories. And as the main character of the of the book, uh, who is called Little Much Afraid, uh, is the main character of the book. She is transformed by her journey uh, as she surrenders and loses more and more of herself and takes on the attributes uh, of the good shepherd, her master. And after going through the trials and reaching the high places, which is what she's been striving for, that the master intended for her. She sits talking to him about these things. And she says to him, surely you must have despaired of ever seeing me reach the high places, she asks. And the good shepherd says, little much afraid. Ever since you placed your hand in mind, I have ever seen you as the person I knew you would become. And I have always treated you that way. When we stand with God and ask God about our future, we're talking with a God who stands in our future. We're talking about a God who sees us as we could be, as He wants us to be, as He desires us to be. And as we pray, we're effectively engaging our future with God. And that's what prayer is. And oftentimes, as we're praying something, when we're praying for God to transform us, we really want to get a picture of what God already knows about us and wants to tell us so that we can step into it. Being transformed is about, is about stepping into the future that God has for us. Why not ask God what that is? Uh, that's what prayer is. Now, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is, that is why through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. You see, there's an aspect where God makes a promise and He says it's yes, but do we say amen? What does amen mean? 
We talked about this during the prayer meeting during lockdown. It came up one of the nights. Amen is both an agreement of what has been said and a commitment to see it brought to pass. Right? When we say amen, we're not just saying yes, and I'm hoping someone else goes and does it. That's not amen. That's uh-huh. Uh-huh. Not a, not a uh, biblical word there. Amen is when we say yes, and I will do whatever it takes to make that yes come to pass. What's my part in it? God's going to do his part. What's my part? Uh, let's have a look at the life of Daniel as a really good example. Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel, at the end of his life, Daniel's been in captivity for almost 70 years at this point, and he remembers reading in the book of Jeremiah. So we'll uh, pick up the first uh, few verses in Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, It was the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, the son of Ahasuerus, who became king of the Babylonians. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord, as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet, that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. And he says, aha, this must be like about to happen. God has made a promise. God has written it down in his word by Jeremiah the prophet, who, who, uh, who prophesied this 200 years earlier, and Daniel was reading it. So what does he do? So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. What? Didn't God already say he's going to do it? Hasn't God already stated that this is the promise? Didn't he say this is what I'm going to do? Why go to prayer? Why does Daniel pray? I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. And as you read on from verse 4, you realize that Daniel was praying all of those things in agreement, with, in agreement with what God has said. He goes on to pray. He says, God, your judgment was righteous. You were right to send us into captivity. We were sinful people. We needed to be chastised. Please, Lord, don't forget that you promised to rescue us from this. He's not reminding God so much as he's aligning his heart and his mind and his will with what God intended. And as we go in to pray for the promises that God has made to us, it's not holding God to account, but it's being transformed on the inside that we would know the mind of Christ. That we would have his heart and his will in our spirits. That that, that transformation would be, a, uh, would be a, an alignment of our will with the will of God. It's not trying to bend God to our will. Uh, and sometimes we need to contend for the things that God has promised. Our amen, when we say, yes, I will take that promise, he's not letting us off the hook. He's saying, right, now you go struggle for it. Now you go take that ground. Now you go fight the battle. I am with you. I will give you the victory, but you need to fight the battle. Sometimes we stand back and God fights the battle for us. And that's our part to play. Absolutely. And sometimes God says, through you, I will bring the victory. Gideon had that promise. God said, I will give you the victory. Does Gideon just stay in the wine press and says, okay, tell me when you've done it, God? No, he had to go. Now, he get everything stripped away so that it was surely God who brought the victory. And yet Gideon still had to go. 
He still had to contend for the promise. And so as we contend, as we persist and struggle and pursue and chase and strive after the promises of God, then we will be transformed in the process. The third part uh, is around being commissioned. Now, we're talking about transformation. If you get one word from this morning, what's it going to be? Transformation. Fantastic. That's right. Good. Did you get that on uh, camera there, Keelan? Did you get that on the... No, no, sorry. Good. Okay. Excellent. For everybody at home, the one word, transformation. Uh, if you take away metamorphosis, that's okay. That's in them. That's all right. Uh, but we are being transformed. Transformation is both a process and a destination. Okay? We are being transformed into something from one degree of glory to another. It's a bit like infinity and infinity plus one for the mathematicians out there. Uh, I, won't, I won't unpack that at all. I haven't got time. All right. Anyway, so the third part, what have we had so far? What was the first one? Awakening. What's the second one? Prayer. Good. Okay. Everyone's with us. All right. The third part, commissioning or commissioned. Sometimes we think of commissioning as sort of this one-time event. Someone is, like a missionary gets up and commissioned to go and, be, and they're sent out. We think of that, you know, that sending process or that uh, instituting process. Somebody may be commissioned into a role uh, within the church. And that's fine, uh, but that's not really the aspect of commissioning that we want to talk about. See, think of it more like this. A painter is commissioned to paint a portrait, okay? Now, once that task is completed, they can be commissioned to do something else. It's to be set aside for a task until that task is completed. Uh, when the task is finished, they can move on to something else. But for us, we are all commissioned. God has placed a particular grace on your life to complete a work. Okay? Now, it's not works-based salvation, but there's a particular grace on your life to complete a work. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's masterpiece. In the Greek there, the word is poem. We are God's poem. He wrote us. And that's expression of his artistic ability. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew. He has transformed us. We have undergone a metamorphosis in God, in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. No, no, back to transformation, Craig. I want that whole, oh, we're transformed in Christ Jesus. Don't tell me about what I have to do. Honestly, really? We, we, we can, we're transformed for a reason. So Not just to Say, look at me. I'm reminded, uh, I was going to show the clip. I was reminded of that, um, uh, have you ever seen the movie A Bug's Life? Uh, the, the caterpillar, the big fat German guy, uh, wants to be transformed into a beautiful butterfly. And then right at the end of the movie, he gets his wings, his tiny little wings. It's never going to lift him off the ground. But anyway, he says, ah, look, I've been transformed. I'm about a beautiful butterfly. I mean, it looks the same. I mean, come on. And sometimes we look at our transformation and say, I want to be this new creature. I want to be this transformed individual. As though that's the destination uh, that we're looking for. But Ephesians 2.10, it says, so we can. So we can. There's a, this, it's a purpose. There's a reason. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. 
He has created us anew. He's transformed us. He's tra- he is transforming us. He will transform us so that we can accomplish the purpose that God planned for us. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit of an allegorical story just to keep things interesting. Consider a hammer. How long should we do that for? Oh, no, no, we'll carry on. Consider a hammer. What's it designed for? It's designed for to hit nails. That's what it was created to do. Uh, now, imagine the hammer gets used. This hammer is particularly um, a, a unique hammer in that it has a soul. It's self-aware. You know, it has a self-consciousness. There's this little hammer. It's, uh, I know I'm anthropomorphizing, but that's the way it goes. Okay, so this hammer is, is, uh, has a desire, has a purpose. And imagine he's uh, in the toolbox uh, with all his other tool friends, and uh, days and days go by, he remains in the toolbox, and he really feels that there's, there's got to be something more. You know, if you're a hammer, just sitting in the toolbox is not really fulfilling. So, he's sure that there's something missing, but doesn't really know what it is. Now, one day, someone takes him out of the toolbox and uses him to break some branches for the fireplace. The hammer is exhilarated, thinking this is fantastic. He's being held, he's being wielded, he's feeling useful. The, the hammer loves it, but at the end of the day, he's still feeling, yeah, that was great, that was excellent, but isn't there something more than that? Now, what he thinks is that perhaps if I just do more stuff, if I just do more of the same, I'll be fulfilled. In the days that follow, he's used often, he reshapes a hubcap, he knocks some holes through a wall, uh, knocks a table leg back into place, and still he's feeling that, yeah, this, it's, it's, it's good, but it's not, it's not as good as it could be. And doing more doesn't really uh, change that sense. And then one day, somebody uses him on a nail. Whoa, the little hammer soul lights up. Oh, fantastic, this is what I was designed for. This is what I was created to do. All right? All of a sudden, all of the things that he did before pale into insignificance because he's actually doing what he was created to do all along. Uh, It's no different from us. Uh, If you miss the, the obvious reference that we're all hammers trying to find our nail. Okay? Uh, there's no biblical reference for that, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Ephesians 2.10, for by his act, in the, in the uh, BBE version, for by his act we were given existence in Christ Jesus to do those good works which God made ready for us that we might do them. So, are we a hammer who is not hammering? Not looking at anyone in particular. Okay. All those people at home are feeling convicted because it just stared right into the camera. Okay. <laughs> now, it's just as, just as important to realize that the hammer is not very good at stripping wires. So if you're a hammer, hit nails. If you're a pair of pliers, don't hit nails. It'll work, but it's not very effective. We were shaped for a particular service in the body of Christ, and then we should not be envious of others who have different roles. We should not try to be others who have different roles. We should try to be what God has created for us to do, and therefore we should do the work that God has for us to do. Each time we use our gifts in God's service, we're being transformed more into His image. 
In the same way, muscles are transformed as they are put to work. And so we should all be seeking to be the spiritual version of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Okay? We're trying... Okay, all right, just don't think about that too much. All right, and the fourth one. So we've had three so far. Awakening, prayer, commissioned, and the fourth one is ecclesia. Uh, Now, uh, ecclesia, I just said it in the Greek. If we translate that into the Latin, it's ecclesia, and if we move that into the English, it's still ecclesia. But you notice how I said that differently? It's, it's, It's spelt Entirely differently. Spelt entirely differently. Right, yes. We did have that conversation. Okay, Ecclesia, the called out ones, the church, the assembly, the congregation. You see, we have a purpose, but it's not just as individuals. We do have an individual purpose. But we also have a purpose within this thing called the church. Remember, we're standing in front of a mirror being transformed into the image of Christ so that we will finally be a true reflection of Christ within us. And Jesus came to introduce something new, something different, something beyond what they had known, beyond the ritualized religion that was Judaism, beyond the endless sacrifices of Roman worship, something beyond, something transformational when it came to getting together uh, as the body of Christ. Uh, You may have heard a a biblical or hermeneutical uh, principle as the law of first mention. Uh, Where is the church first mentioned in the Bible? Hmm. Uh, Well, actually, the first mention is Matthew 16. So this is Peter's just after Peter said, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And and Peter says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. All of that. And then he gets to this point. He says in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the first time that the word church is mentioned in the Bible. Is when Jesus says, I will build my church. Not the church, not just a group of people, and it's not just anybody. It's Jesus building his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Are we that church? The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. The jury is still out on that one, but we think that probably we should be. Okay, Uh, (laughs) when Jesus introduced the word church, this is not the first time that they'd heard the word. Okay, and, uh, you know, and Jesus said, I will build my house, and everyone's going, what, is that even English? Well, it's Greek, or was he speaking Aramaic? I don't know. Anyway, um, (laughs) they understood this word ecclesia from everyday usage. This was an assembly of people. This was a society. Now, you've got to think first century Jews hearing the word church for the first time, what are they used to? They used to, used to a very hierarchical, very structured system of religion. That's what worship meant to them. And that when Jesus says, I will build my church, he actually uses this word ecclesia, and they go, what? No, you, hang on, you, know, you could just imagine Peter going, hang on, whoa, 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 just, just roll that back one there, Jesus. 
Did you say ecclesia? No, no, you meant kingdom. Kingdom, king, princes, princes, counts, dukes, earls, serfs, peasants, slaves. You can just imagine that's their thought process. It's supposed to be a hierarchy. These are the 12 disciples. Surely when you come into my kingdom, I'd really like to have the chair on the left. And I'll take the other one on the right, says the sons of thunder, James and John. Where was, where was their mind in that? Right? This is the ecclesia. And he's going, no, it's going to be this sort of democratic society. You're all equal. What? This can't be. I'm trying to put that in the first century uh, thing. And here's something interesting. You see, Jesus introduces both a kingdom and a society, both a monarchy and a democracy, and he uses them interchangeably. We think of the church in terms of a kingdom, often in terms of the hierarchy, and yet the, the order that Jesus is proposing is there is a king and there is everybody else. We are the ones who put in the bishops and the overseers and the deacons and the pastors, and we are the ones who create this hierarchy of authority and this nearness to the king, because that's our mindset. But Jesus is not saying that. He's saying that the church is about a transformation that goes beyond for the individuals. We are collective. People have different roles, for sure. But it's about taking a bunch of people and transforming them into an army. It's about taking a pile of individual building blocks and transforming them into a temple. It's about making or taking a collection of cells and transforming them into a living, breathing body. It's about taking people from every ethnic and geographical background and transforming them into a cohesive family unit. We are all responsible within the ecclesia, within the society that makes up the body of Christ. Where were you shaped to serve as an individual also means that you're part of a body. Where is your shape that fits in with what the body is doing? Uh, Whereas we're transformed into the image of Christ, we very much more naturally are put into the place that we are designed to go within the ecclesia. And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the strength of the underworld, the powers of darkness would not be able to overcome that particular body. That was a prophetic promise on the eve of Jesus going to the cross and dying and seeming to have failed the whole thing. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against this thing that I am building, this church. What's your part in the church, in the, the ecclesia? Okay, so there's four things. Prayer, Oh, sorry, awakening, prayer, commissioning, and the ecclesia. And you'll hear lots more about that uh, as we unpack that uh, in the next few weeks. And I'm going to leave you with this uh, thought. If I'm supposed to be flying like a butterfly, why does it still feel like I'm crawling in the mud? If I'm supposed to be flying like a butterfly, why does it still feel like I'm crawling in the mud? Good. All right, we'll finish with that. <laughs> I should, maybe I should move on. Yes, the question is, 
as we looked at 2 Corinthians 3.18, how are we transformed? By beholding the glory of the Lord. What are you beholding? What are you looking into? Where is your attention fixed? We become what we constantly behold. If I give my time to gazing intently at the television or other electronic device, I will adopt the ways and words of what I see. Ooh. Which is okay if you're watching Stargate. <laughs> sorry, is this outside voice? Uh, Stargate, yeah, sorry. No, sorry. Justification is not transformation, okay? Just... <laughs> Just leaving it there. Okay. If I, if I look deeply into the glory of God, then my mind will be reprogrammed so that I take on the image of God. I take on the mind of Christ. If I look at myself seeing the reflection in the world, I will probably see no need to change. If I look at myself using the reflection of the word, I will see the many things that need to be transformed. Okay, we're not talking about a destination only, but the journey as well. I continue to wake up so that I can be fully awake. I pray into the promises so that I can walk in the promises. I serve in the role I'm commissioned, for I will become the servant that God has commissioned. And as I'm transformed into the shape that God intended, I find my perfect fit in the ecclesia that Jesus is building. So we want to stand in front of the mirror of, that is the gospel, and continue to be transformed into the image of Christ. If I could get the band to come back up, uh, we're going to sing a song uh, as we finish. And this is a benediction from number six. Um, and as we, as we, when I uh, uh, understood that we were going to finish with this, I thought, let's understand exactly what is being said in Numbers chapter six. Uh, this is the Lord, is actually the word of the Lord there, Yahweh, used three times. There are three lines. The first line is three words. The second line is five words. The third line is seven words. We miss all of that in the, in the English. So it goes like this. I'm not going to say it in Hebrew. The Lord bless you. Let me show you what this means in the Hebrew. If this is the gift that God wants to give you, this is God giving you the gift. This is God kneeling down to give you something. May Yahweh, the covenant God who comes close, kneel before you and present you with gifts. And keep you. The word there for keep is the same word that used to keep sheep. May he guard you with a hedge of thorns, protecting you in heart, mind, soul, and body. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. May Yahweh, the covenant God who comes close, bring you order, illuminating every part of your being with his glory and presence. And be gracious to you. Gracious. May he stoop down in kindness to one who is unworthy, extending the hand of love and fellowship. That's what graciousness means in the Hebrew. 
The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. May Yahweh, the covenant God who comes close, lift his face from what he is doing to gaze upon you and see your need, supporting and sustaining you with his entire being and give you peace. May he give you shalom peace. Shalom peace is a positive state of rightness and well-being, health, prosperity, and safety. All of that is in the blessing. So as we sing the blessing, just remember that God told Moses that these are the words I want the priests to pray over you. This is a a prayer that God instituted to pray over his people. This is what he wants to do for you. So this morning, uh, as, we, as we hear the blessing, as we sing those words, think about the things that God is doing in that for you, and then think about your response in transformation.